Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, history friend. My name is Zach Twomley, and you are listening to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails, specifically the Versailles Anniversary Project. This is episode 45, which is kind of ridiculous. But it does mean that if you haven't listened to 44 previous episodes, you probably won't know what's going on. If you just arrived here and you don't know who we are or what we're all about, then the Versailles Anniversary Project is tasked with examining where the Treaty of Versailles came from. And the very, very long process which led to its creation a century ago is something that we've been talking about for the last several months since the armistice actually was created, which was the 11th of November. So yeah, we've we've kind of been delving very deeply into this era for a very long time now, but we're by no means finished yet. Our story doesn't finish until the 28th of June, and even then there's some outstanding articles still to look at. But if you're wondering if this podcast is for you, if you're wondering if this series is for you, and you might be asking yourself that question, if 
you've been staying with us all this time, maybe you feel like the story's never going to end. But it is, and there's interesting tidbits along the way. Tidbits like these. The story of William Bullitt and his journey to Russia in March. It's pretty much unknown unless you actually know the story of the Paris Peace Conference well. Most of the time we just imagine Russia as this far-off being that no one ever went to. But William Bullitt went there, and we have the records to prove it. And you would be justified in asking, well, what podcast on earth would go to this much trouble to try and dig up stories that I might not have heard of about things that happened a century ago? This one right here, dear history friend. We've been doing it for so many years now, but we've especially been doing it ever since we joined Patreon. Because we've joined Patreon, we have, well, been bowled over by the generosity of our history friends. And it really doesn't show any signs of slowing down anytime soon. Because you guys support this podcast so well, it's sustainable. It means that this is my job, it means that I'm able to spend so much time on it, and go into the detail that you all love and expect from this show. If you're not someone that wants to give on Patreon, that is grand. I would just ask you that your task for today, or this week, or until the Versailles Anniversary Project runs out, is to try and tell as many people as you can about this show. Tell them about it, tell them that it exists, and that you're enjoying it, and that I go to way too much trouble to actually bring it to you every single... Well, I was going to say every single week, but lately it feels like every single day. It's been a very stressful week in college, where I've actually created several exam papers. If you thought it was stressful doing exams, then think about those people on the other end of those that have to actually make them happen. It's not a fun time, but it's over now, thankfully, at least for the moment. And I can focus on more important things, like the story of William Bullitt. So if you'd like to help this project out... Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, you know the story by now. But if you're just here for the story today and you don't want that extra content that comes to you if you pay a small amount every single month, then stick around as we dive right into this.
You're listening to the Versailleniversary Project, episode 45. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailleniversary Project, episode 45. In the last few episodes, we've dealt with the problem posed by Russia. That big, mysterious, dangerous colossus would have to somehow be grasped and understood if the Allies were to have any hope of creating this new world order. That, at least, was the idea. But the problem was that the government in place in Russia, that is, the Bolshevik one, was not acceptable to the Allies. And it was doubly unacceptable because the belief went that since the Russian Civil War was ongoing, the Allies might not have to put up with the Bolsheviks forever. While it had been made plain that there would not be an invasion of Russia by the Big Five, at least not in the traditional sense, we will see in future episodes that, while they talked about peace in Paris... The Allies were willing and able to make war in Russia. The ends, it was claimed, justified the means. But did it have to be this way? Certain figures did not think so, and they thought that the best way to solve the Russian problems was through dialogue. But dialogue about what? Well, in the mind of William Bullitt, he had been chosen for a very special mission indeed. It would be up to him to go to Russia, to meet the Russian leaders, yes, even the Bolshevik ones, and to report back to the American president, about what he had learned. In the meantime, the Allies would hopefully determine what policy they'd follow towards Russia, and Bullitt's fact-finding mission would inform this policy. Typically enough, though, nobody seems to have told Bullitt where his mission ended or begun. Sent, according to Wilson, on a fact-finding mission, Bullitt seems to have believed that it was up to him to facilitate peace in Russia by acting as a plenipotentiary for the United States. Whether Bullitt came to this impression because Wilson was typically vague about what he wanted, or because Bullet thought the actual world of himself is another story, and one which it's high time we delved into now, because it is so fantastic. Without any further ado, I'm going to take you all to the 8th of March, 1919, where one particularly excited American official was about to begin this incredible journey. You are hereby directed to proceed to Russia for the purpose of studying conditions, political and economic, therein, for the purpose of the American commissioners, plenipotentiary to negotiate peace, and all American diplomatic and consular officials are hereby directed to extend to you the proper courtesies and facilities to enable you to fulfil the duties of your mission. This message, communicated through Robert Lansing and coming from Edward House, represented William C. Bullitt's big break. Upon receiving this message, William Bullitt was an idealistic Wilsonian, convinced of the values of the League of Nations, and convinced still further that the institution would require German and Russian participation within it for its aims to succeed. A graduate of Yale and a Harvard dropout, in spring 1919, Bullitt was a member of Philadelphia's elite society. He came from money, and it showed, but his credentials stood him in good stead, and they recommended him for diplomatic work. The 28-year-old seemed to have the world at his feet, and if you asked his mother, then you would have been told just how intelligent her boy was, and how easy he had found the challenge of traversing the Ivy League. Bullet was everything Wilson would have liked. Well-travelled, having been across Europe before the war, moderate enough in his views, though initially possessing of a latent sympathy for Bolshevism, which would soon be exercised, loyal to Wilsonianism and a believer in its tenets, intelligent, confident, and well-presented. Neither the president nor his servant could have predicted that, six months later, William C. Bullitt would be standing before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, explaining how it had all gone wrong, and why it was all the president's fault. 
The chairman of that hearing on the 12th of September 1919 was none other than Woodrow Wilson's arch-nemesis, Henry Cabot Lodge. What had occasioned such a transformation of this convinced Wilsonian? Bullitt's experience had been, first and foremost, an episode of profound personal disillusionment with everything the West declared itself to stand for with respect to Russia. This disillusionment began when Bullitt returned from his two-and-a-half-week trip to that country in March 1919, only to discover that things had changed and that the President was not interested in what he had to say. Furthermore, the very fact that he had ventured to Russia at all was now being closely guarded as some kind of terrible secret. When he had left for Russia on the 22nd of February, having received House's blessing three days before, Bullitt was optimistic to a fault, and he imagined that he could bring peace to this corner of the world where others had failed. By the time he returned in late March, Hungary had been overcome by a Bolshevik revolution, Lenin's regime seemed more terrifying than ever, and compromise with the Bolsheviks was now unthinkable. The work which Bullitt had taken on and the solutions which he wrested from the grasping Lenin had all been for naught then, and Bullitt would spend the rest of his life cursing first the name and failings of Wilson and then the communists themselves once he became America's first ambassador to Soviet Russia in 1933. William Bullitt would not have had to look too far to find individuals that despised the very notion of accommodation with Russia. Winston Churchill, the statesman more famous for anticipating the dangers posed by Nazism, was in 1919 warning of the fatal challenge to the West which Bolshevism posed. Churchill, alongside Marshal Foch and Clemenceau, were the hawks that argued to the end for a military solution in Russia. Churchill was able to yield greater influence at this point due to the absence of the two more moderate voices, Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George, who were back at their respective capitals when Churchill began his campaign with the most gusto. In the days immediately following Wilson's departure, up to the 19th of February when Clemenceau's assassination forced everyone to place the Russian question on the back burner, Churchill never ceased to argue for the most extreme solutions to the delicate Russian situation. The Bolsheviks were unquestionably ghastly and dangerous, but to commit soldiers to the Russian Civil War would be tantamount to insanity when demobilisation and a return to civilian life was on the top of every soldier's list of desires. Furthermore, the Allies could not sustain such enormous costs of maintaining these millions of men after such a costly war. To this, Churchill would have insisted that the Allies had soldiers in Russia already, and that they had committed to a blockade of that country to undermine the Bolshevik regime. Winston is in Paris, Lloyd George had said. He wants to conduct a war against the Bolsheviks. That would cause a revolution. Our people would never allow it. The Prime Minister was an important foil to Churchill, who was the Secretary for War, and to the aggressive French at the same time. Lloyd George knew that the Allies were spread thin already, and he knew that their soldiers had only gone to Russia in the first place to protect against the German threat, which, he insisted, remained the more dangerous and more relevant. Not merely is it none of our business to interfere with internal affairs, it would be positively mischievous. It would strengthen and consolidate Bolshevik opinion. In this, Lloyd George was thinking like a statesman and imagining the use which the Bolsheviks would make out of the theoretical Allied invasion, where they had already made so much credit from previous propaganda campaigns. There was no question of crushing something like the Bolsheviks so long as they held the epicentre of Russia and the whites remained on the fringes. Where Lloyd George was thinking like a pragmatic statesman, Churchill was seeing red, 
literally, and he saw the end goal before he saw the plan. It was eerily similar to the previous half-baked plan of Churchill's, which had sent so many men to die at a place called Gallipoli. The death of the Principo conference idea by mid-February meant that a solution for Russia through negotiation appeared impossible. There was much enthusiasm for solving the Russian problem, though, and Wilson believed emphatically that, without Russian participation, the League would be blunted considerably as an international force. For this reason, Wilson seems to have supported enthusiastically the restoration of much of Imperial Russia wherever it was possible, such as in the Baltic states and in the Ukraine. Only when it became clear that Bolshevism posed a danger to these states, and that an independent movement existed in some force in them, did the American president change his tune, but then only reluctantly, and quite slowly as well. The problem was how unpalatable the Bolshevik regime was to elements in American and British politics. Recognition was impossible for the regime of czar killers, and Lenin was perceived simply as too radical to be trusted with the governance of all of Russia. Another severe problem, which hampered the Allies, was the chronic lack of information. The Russian resident in Stockholm, Letvinov, represented the only conduit through which information about Russia would flow through, and he was hardly likely to be the most impartial source of information. Thus, when House informed Bullitt that he would be chosen to lead a fact-finding expedition to deepest, darkest Russia, Bullitt jumped at the chance to move up the ladder of importance and demonstrate his credentials. What sort of conditions would the Bolsheviks accept in return for peace? And to be honest, Mr. Bullitt, could you just straight up let us know what the general condition of the country is too? Due to Lloyd George's desire for information and solutions to the impasse, he also blessed Bullitt's mission. As I mentioned, though, Bullet's mission started off badly, although it wasn't obvious at first, because it began under a cloud of misinformation and misconception from the moment Bullet interpreted his mission as a peacemaking one. How might he have gotten this impression? Well, it could have been the case that House or Lloyd George were genuinely unclear about what they wanted, but it could also have been the case that Bullet wanted so desperately to prove himself and contribute to the Allied effort that he took what he wanted from the instructions which he was given. Notwithstanding the confusion over his orders, Bullet made his way to St. Petersburg by the way of Norway, then Sweden, and then through the guidance and direction of Swedish communists and Anglo-American diplomats alike. He led a delegation of individuals, which, it was hoped, would help show the Bolsheviks that they were serious and sympathetic. Lansing had recommended Bullet in the previous days to lead the mission, believing that it would cure him of Bolshevism. But though he was open-minded and willing to believe the best about the Bolshevik regime, William Seabullet was by no means a communist, nor was he the most radical member of the delegation. That honour went to Lincoln Steffens, the socialist, radical and American journalist, who happened to be a friend of House. It was hoped that by populating the delegation with such friendly faces, the Bolsheviks would be more likely to meet and accommodate them. The early leg of the journey was awash with optimism and friendly gestures from well-placed Scandinavian representatives, who led Bullet and company to St. Petersburg's train station by the evening of the 8th of March. Bullet was armed with a more precise list of goals, courtesy of his earlier liaisons with House and Philip Kerr, Lloyd George's private secretary. According to the historian Michael Castella Blackburn, who examined Bullet's relations with Russia throughout his career, these terms included the following. 
First, if the Bolsheviks stopped fighting, would the United States do the same? Second, would the United States insist that its allies accept such an armistice? Third, would the United States extend economic help to Russia if the Bolsheviks refrained from using the aid for propaganda purposes, and if the Bolsheviks allowed supplies to go to the opposition governments in Russia? Fourth, under such conditions, would the United States then insist that the Allies withdraw from Russian territory on condition of Bolshevik guarantees against reprisals for Russians who gave Allied assistance? Last, Bullitt asked House whether it was necessary to gain agreement for repaying debts. House thought this was unnecessary, but acceptance would be in their favour, especially since French opposition arose partly from Bolshevik refusal to pay Russian debts. House agreed to all of this. In conversations with Philip Kerr, remember Lloyd George's private secretary, Bullitt had refined these goals somewhat, that the white governments would retain their occupied territory, that Soviet-controlled railways and ports had to respect the same regulations as international railways and ports in the rest of Europe, that persons conducting non-political business must be given free entry to and security within Soviet Russia, and that trade relations between the Soviets and the outside world must be restored. After some uncertainty over whether the key Bolshevik leaders would even meet with them, Bullet's train pulled into St. Petersburg in the evening of March the 8th and found the city cold and starving. The Allied blockade of Russia, which is largely forgotten today as much as the focus is normally given to the blockade of Germany, had just as disastrous an impact on the country as its German counterpart. Since the Bolsheviks were geared towards winning the Civil War, there was little space which could be devoted for food transports or luxury goods of any kind. The railways carried war materials, or soldiers, and the grim reception which the old Tsarist capital presented to Bullet testified to this emergency. After a week of meeting with various Soviet figures, including Lenin, whom Bullet found to be very impressive, Bullet sent his report back home to the American Commission on Russia, saying... There is no constructive opposition to the communists. We can overthrow the communists if we are able to continue the blockade and intervention indefinitely. We can produce such famine, such hunger riots and battles for bread that the anarchists and left social revolutionaries will rule for a moment over the ruins of Russia. The other course which is open to us is to make an offer of peace along the lines of the proposal of the Soviet government transmitted in my foregoing cable. It was in this foregoing cable that Bullitt had outlined the proposals which Lenin had agreed to. These proposals for securing peace were, according to Lenin, akin to a second treaty of Brest-Litovsk, but the situation in Russia warranted such a compromise. Bullitt contradicted himself not for the first time when he alluded to the stable nature of the Bolshevik regime and the improvement of living standards and cultural delights, only to note a short time later that... Every man, woman and child in Moscow and Petrograd is suffering from slow starvation. Typhoid, typhus and smallpox are epidemic. To this, Bullet added that Lenin and company had compromised with him. Not because they fear the ascendancy of any other party in Russia, but because they know that if they do not compromise, and if the blockade is not lifted, they will go down with the rest of the Russian people into anarchy. Ultimately, in spite of the momentous meetings between the future ambassador to Russia and Vladimir Lenin, it seems that the naive optimism of Bullet clashed with the cynical opportunism of Lenin. While I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for these meetings over the 9th to the 12th of March to see what was actually talked about and agreed to, Margaret Macmillan suggests that Lenin was willing to say anything in return for the promise of concessions. 
Failing the lifting of the blockade, Lenin would use the occasion to score another propaganda victory. The Bolshevik regime, after all, had tended to see any agreements made not as binding, but advisory, when it suited them. It is entirely possible that if Bullet had made some concrete treaty with the Bolsheviks, Lenin would have violated this agreement once it suited him. Furthermore, Bullet's inexperience and lack of understanding about what Bolshevism meant and what communism's tenets were, however imperfectly they were applied to Russia, meant that the Philadelphia native sent back deeply flawed pictures of the divisions of the regime. At one point, Bullet even cast Lenin as the right-wing force of his party, whose influence was countered by the more extreme anarchist elements. Bullet was correct about one particular Allied policy, though, when he said, No government, save a socialist government, can be set up in Russia today except by foreign bayonets, and any governments will fall the moment such support is withdrawn. This proved to be a prophetic judgment indeed, though this was not immediately clear until the summer of 1919. The futility of Bullet's ill-fated trip is captured in the actual terms which Lenin seemed to agree to. They were far too lenient on the Western powers, and in retrospect appear far too good to be true. In return for a Bolshevik commitment to pay off the French debts and hold back from attacking their white opponents, the Bolsheviks requested that the Allies cease the blockade and stop supplying their white enemies. Bullet believed that once food began to come into the country, and once the Russian people could see that their allies no longer had soldiers on the ground, they would find the strength to rise up against the communists and institute a more acceptable revolution which established democracy in a uniquely Russian flavour. Bullet believed this because Lenin had essentially persuaded him so. At no point did Bullet seem to suspect that Lenin might be lying, or that the Bolsheviks would use the opportunity granted by the Allied withdrawal to land the killing blow to their enemies. The very fact that Bullet's proposed peace left Lenin's enemies in control of more of Russia than the Bolsheviks seemed to scream temporary and unacceptable, but Bullet failed to see it. They were not trying to establish political democracy, legal liberty and negotiated peace. Not now, Lincoln Steffens remarked. They were at present only laying the basis for these good things. Bullet was similarly positive. There was no question that he or his peers had been duped or led into agreements which Lenin had no intention of honouring. Lenin had been fighting against his class enemies and now his military enemies for most of his life. His life had been a struggle against conflicting ideologies and ideologues who threatened his vision of a communist utopia. The experiences had left him cynical, manipulative and incredibly difficult to read. The arrival of this self-assured, 28-year-old blue-blood American aristocrat would have seemed like something akin to Christmas, if Christmas had not been a dirty word to Lenin by this point. Bullet was a well-meaning man who genuinely desired the best for the Russian people, and his large ambition and later scorn for Wilson should not obscure this fact, but another fact is that, in my opinion anyway, William C. Bullet was hopelessly out of his depth, and he lacked the knowledge of personal diplomacy, of communist ideology, or of Lenin's personality. Bullet was in the majority in this regard. The whole reason he had been sent to Russia in the first place was to find out the facts about the Bolshevik regime and about Lenin, the person. Bullet believed that this task was accomplished and that he had done his work and that now the only mission of persuading Paris remained before he came into glory. It was certainly bitterly unfair and unfortunate for Bullet that while he had been away in Russia, a great deal had changed in Paris. 
The first issue was the intensification of the debates on Germany and how to sort out her peace treaty, but the more immediate issue was the eruption on the 21st of March in Hungary of Béla Kuhn's Bolshevik Revolution, which propelled Hungary to the forefront of Allied sensibilities and reminded them that Bolshevism was the constantly expanding virus in desperate need of quarantine. Under these circumstances, proposals for a compromise peace with Russia were not just obsolete, they were also dangerous to the governments that had originally devised them. Accusations would be thrown at Wilson and Lloyd George that they sympathised with Bolshevism, that they were too soft on that murderous regime, or that they intended to recognise them as the legitimate government of Russia. Lloyd George faced a petition signed by 200 Conservatives in the Commons to the effect that Lloyd George must not recognise the Soviet government. Lloyd George had no intention of doing so. When meeting with William Bullitt over breakfast on the 28th of March, when Bullitt had returned home, the Prime Minister showed Bullitt the front page of The Times, which was awash with alarmist rhetoric over some Jewish-Bolshevik conspiracy to aid the Communists and thereby facilitate the recovery of Germany. As long as the British press is doing this kind of thing, Lloyd George said, how can you expect me to be sensible about Russia? Maybe Bullitt did not expect the British Prime Minister to assent to his proposals, but he could at least get recognition from his president, the man who had approved in the first place his journey to Russia. Right? Wrong. The writing was on the wall when House met with Bullitt on that same day of the 28th of March, a meeting which House recalled in his diary, when he wrote, Bullitt got back tonight from Russia. His story is interesting, and at last I can see a way out of that vexatious problem. That is, if we can get action by the Prime Ministers and the President. I cautioned Bullitt against telling all he told me. Russia, according to him, is orderly but starving, and if relations are not opened with the outside world, anarchy will be prevalent, for the man without bread will steal and murder for it. That part of his story, I told him, must be for my ears alone. Most of the Allies, I regret to chronicle, would just as soon have the people starve as not. They were willing to allow the people of the Central Empires starve, and they are just as willing to have Russia go the same way. It is fear that will bring about a Russian settlement, not pity. Most of the world seems to have lost its sense of compassion. House was at least able to couch his explanation in language which made none of it sound like Bullet's fault. The world, House seemed to imply, was not ready for Bullet's findings because of the anxiety in the air at that moment regarding the expansion of Bolshevism and the dangers it posed to the West. Bullet himself was now seen as something of a liability because it had not been totally possible to keep his mission hush-hush. Word had leaked out that an American had attempted to lead a delegation into Russia. On the 16th of April, Lloyd George would be asked specifically about Bullet's mission, to which he lamely replied, There was a suggestion that there was some young American who had come back. Lloyd George refrained from commenting on Bullet's success in that regard, or on the fact that he had approved of the scheme personally. Bullet's experience only became worse, as it became more and more obvious that he had effectively been disowned. Nobody could risk paying his suggestions sufficient attention, and it was no longer clear what the Allies wanted from Russia anyway, as if it had been clear to begin with. Bullet stuck around in Paris until mid-May, when he learned of the harsh terms Germany would be forced to assent to. This was the last straw for him. Neither the Allies nor the President he had respected so much evidently had any intentions of making a fair new world. The disadvantaged powers in Russia and Germany were apparently to be scorned, screwed over and taken advantage of. 
kicked when they were down or ignored until their populations succumbed to starvation. Bullet was bitterly disappointed and he proclaimed his new mission to resign from his post and go to the Riviera on extended vacation. To lie in the sand and watch the whole world go to hell, as he put it. But he would be back. This slighted American aristocrat had allowed his hurt feelings to remain on the boil over the summer and when the opportunity came in September 1919, he jumped at the opportunity to tell his story and twist in the knife while he was at it. If the president wouldn't appreciate his talents, then he would use these talents against his president. In the committee hearing which followed, Bullet made sure to get a full report of his mission to Russia included on the record. He was determined that his hard work would be recorded for posterity, even if nobody had paid it any mind when it had mattered most. Bullet kept a firm grip on the victim card for the rest of his life, and he returned to politics with the ascension of FDR. In late 1933, Bullet was on his way back to Soviet Russia, and this time he sent far less rosy reports back home about what he saw. In fact, William C. Bullet became one of the most committed anti-communists of his age, going so far as to gather a coalition of anti-Soviet powers together in the late 1930s, once he took up his new post as ambassador to France in 1936. Bullet's most controversial contribution to this anti-Soviet scheme was his efforts to craft some kind of rapprochement between France and Nazi Germany. Nothing, Bullet believed, could be allowed to stand in the way of taking down the evil regime which Stalin then led, considering the horrific experiences of so many Russian people at that point in time, especially when we think about how bad the purges were at that point, it is little wonder that William C. Bullet felt this way. The Allies were by no means finished with Russia yet, but the Bullet mission remains a fascinating episode within their mission to fix that troubled quarter of the world and bring it back in line with the new world order that they were creating. Bullet had been sent and had acted with the best of intentions, if for no other reason than Lloyd George desperately wished to reduce British commitments wherever possible, and because he knew very well that a war in that theatre would have been hopelessly doomed, the British Prime Minister enthusiastically supported any efforts at reaching a Russian peace. But Lloyd George's political rivals, as much as his allies, were against this, and Woodrow Wilson faced similar trials, not to mention the unstated problem that Russia consistently suffered from. It simply was not close enough to the Allied orbit to remain at the top of their list of priorities for long. Germany was viewed as the far more potent threat and the far more important challenge to solve. But this didn't mean that the big three would find the German mission any easier than its Russian counterpart. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.